You've heard of crimes of passion, incidents where love and the law intersect in uneasy ways, where the lines between what is lustful and what is legal get strangely blurred. History is replete with such instances. But what if that crime were more than just a lover's tiff? Was instead a stone cast into a lake whose ripples spread ever further outward, touching the lives of dozens, of hundreds of people in its time? What if that crime changed history? Thankfully, we don't need Ashton Kutcher to tell us that story. Today on Crime Capsule, we're delighted to have Jack Bales, historian, research librarian, and author of *The Chicago Cub: Shot for Love*, a showgirl's crime of passion in the 1932 World Series, a book he describes as the strange saga of the showgirl and the shortstop. Jack, let me ask you, what did it feel like when you saw all these threads coming together in that one moment? Oh, it was just, it was just, just marvelous. Uh, I mean, it's, I, and, I, and all the, the pieces started coming together in my head, too. I said, and, and plus all these adverse circumstances and Violet and wanting to get married and then becoming a showgirl and, and then shooting Billy and then the judge working in a, in, a, in, a, in a mortuary and helping gangsters. And then, of course, she had her love letters stolen by her male bondsman, and she, she performs in her burlesque show as a singer with her bear cub girls. You know, you can't make all this stuff up, you know, and everything. Her career just goes on and on and on. And finally, she, you know, leaves Chicago, moves to L.A. But all this, be, all this because of the, of, the, of the shooting, because when, with, with Billy out of the line, with, with Roger Hornsby gone, because he got let go by William Beck, and then Billy's future's uncertain. The Cubs brought in somebody else to play shortstop, Mark Kennig, and, and Mark really helped the Cubs win the pennant. The, he was a former Yankee, and when the when it came time to divide the World Series bonus money, the Cubs only award him a half share of the World Series bonus money. The Yankees call the Cubs cheapskates. That gets in the newspaper. That fires up the Cubs. In fact, the, the one of the most famous sports writers of, all, of that time, Shirley Povich, who, by the way, was the father of the talk show host, Maury Povich, he says that, quote, the Cubs' stinginess fired the Yankees to new heights. So what would have happened if they hadn't been so stingy with the World Series money? The Yankees might have gone into the World Series, you know, rather cocksure and confident, but not really out for blood the way they went into now. And so all these, as I say, all these dominoes kept on falling here. It really is remarkable. And I was so, I almost sat up, sort of bolt upright in my chair as I was reading this. I thought, you know, how is it possible that all these things converge in this one way? But yet they do. Let's talk about aftermaths. That season, after the shooting, Billy recovers a little a little more slowly maybe than he would have liked. He was getting a little stir-crazy watching his, his teammates play, and he's sitting in the chair, sitting in the bleachers. But he recovers, and then we reach this incredible moment of... Babe Ruth standing on the mound, staring down Charlie Root. And for those listeners out there who may not be familiar with possibly the most famous pitch in baseball history. Right, it probably <laughs> is, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. For those basketball fans out there, right, for those football fans out there, would you, would you just describe very briefly what happened with the called shot? Okay, so now during the World Series, Cubs were down 
two games to none in the World Series when Game 3 was played in Chicago. And all these insults have been flying back and forth between the teams. And it was it was really pretty bad. It was called bench jockeying was the expression they used. Uh, the Chicago crowd was screaming encouragement at the Cubs. They were screaming abuse at the Yankees. And in the fifth inning, with the score was tied 4-4, four to four, Ruth was at the plate facing the pitcher Charlie Root, who was a real hard-nosed pitcher. And the count was at two balls and two strikes, and Babe Ruth raised two fingers of his right hand. Okay, now what was he doing? Was he signaling that that was only two strikes? Did he gesture you know, rather contemptuously to the Cubs in the third base dugout? Did he gesture contemptuously to pitcher Charlie Root, as well he should have? Or did he point to center field as if he was going to signal that he was going to hit a home run? You know, that is, as they say, did he call his shot? And and that's exactly what happened. He hit a home run. He's rounding the bases, and, and FDR is in the stands, and he's applauding Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth is saying to himself, you lucky dog, you lucky, lucky dog. He rounded the bases. And no one knows that uh, Lou Gehrig was up next, and he hit a home run too. But no one really you know, uh, knows anything about that because they were so excited about Babe Ruth uh, hitting that home run. And, of course, the Yankees went on to win that game. And, in fact, they swept the Cubs in the World Series, you know, six games to nothing, just as Babe Ruth had hoped they would. You have a great account of... Charlie Root and the, oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, the years-long hangover that he had from Babe Ruth hitting that dinger and f- folks giving him grief about it. There's just this one moment I have to pick up on. It's it's in your book where you say that, um, uh, for example, during spring training one year, as Root was pitching toward batting practice, a young player defiantly raised his bat towards center field. Root knocked him flat on the ground with his first pitch and proceeded to keep him there yeah, as right. he threw ball after ball at him. Okay, he yeah. didn't point. The player yeah. finally <laughs> but, shouted. But, but, oh. <laughs> That's great. But my, my favorite one, though, is that with the way they were playing wiffle ball, you know, and uh, Charlie Root's family's having a family picnic, and they're playing a game of wiffle ball, and of course, Charlie Root's pitching, and Charlie Root, Root's junior's wife is at bat, and she takes her wiffle ball bat and, and points it to center field, and Charlie Root immediately unleashes a wiffle ball and hits her in the neck and knocks her to the ground. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> he, had a, he had a hard time getting over that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he was such a, he was such a, a, a hard-nosed guy. There's one quote I might have it in my book that says, uh, any, anybody who knows me, knows, he said he didn't point, and anybody who knows me knows that I would have knocked him on his tail if he had, if he had uh, uh, shown me up by pointing to center field. But later I thought, thinking, well, Lou Gehrig was going to be up next. Would you really have put uh, Babe Ruth on base knowing that guy like Lou Gehrig was up? So maybe that's just you know saying that afterwards. So Billy had a good few years after the 32 season and after he recovered from the shooting despite carrying a bullet around between his ribs for the rest of his life right uh, he did in fact uh, I, I mentioned that uh, a couple of weeks after the the shooting the, uh, he was complaining of stomach pain so he had to go back in the hospital again and, and they did but they did find a bullet they didn't know whether he was shot a third time or whether that that bullet had been there all along and they just didn't they just didn't find it before you know and everything so uh, 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 
But uh, but you know he was pretty well banged up, and then he he later got in some, he he screwed up his leg I think one time sliding, and might have been 1935. But he 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 was a, a very he was very much of a play to win uh, a player, and I think it was traded 1938, and Phil Cavaretta, their scrappy first baseman. Uh, who was probably the Mr. Cub before Ernie Banks came along. You know, he said, why trade Billy Jurgis, you know, and everything. He was just kind of the glue that hold the, held, held the whole team together. But he was traded in 1938, yeah. Yeah, goes to the Giants, goes to the Boston, Boston Braves. Braves then he, and then he actually comes back to the Cubs for a minute before the sort of injuries and, you know, his sort of diminished performance really begin to catch up with him. 46 and 47, something like that. Uh, yeah, he goes into management. Which was kind of a disaster. And I, and I think... Part of it was that he was just so demanding, uh, and and I and I read the contemporary newspaper articles at that time, and I think the press really gave him a bad deal. I mean, he, Ted Williams was playing on the Boston Red Sox back then, and he and Ted Williams got along great because they were both hustling. But I saw an article in Sports Illustrated, and the and the Red Sox at that time didn't really hustle. I can't remember the name of their previous manager, but he was just kind of a you know let everybody go their own way, and it didn't really do too good of a job. And uh, uh, they fired him to make way for Billy, and uh, uh, and Billy expected a lot of him. And uh, in fact, Billy's managing style over took precedence or, or overshadowed the fact that the Boston Red Sox uh, brought in Pumpsy Green, an African-American player, to play in the infield. The, the, the Boston press really didn't make that much of, much of a big deal about that because they were too busy focusing on how awful the team was. But Billy jumped all over Pumpsy Green because uh, he missing out on double plays. You know, said a, a good infielder makes the double plays because Billy was really good about making the double plays. Finally, they kind of got things together in nineteen in 1960 and all, but it was just too little, too late. He had a managerial record of 59-63, winning percentage of just 484. He was fired again and uh, fired in 1960, uh, so he played for part of 1959, part of 1960. It was a disastrous career. I've talked I've talked to Red Sox fans, and they they really fault Billy. I, I think. From reading the newspaper articles at the time, he quit baseball largely because of a fear of flying, I think. He didn't like to fly, and so he retired in early 1962, an outfielder. But he, but he became a marvelous baseball scout and instructor. What's his name? Harlan Killebrew, Harmon Killebrew, uh, Hall of Famer. He owed, his, he owed his career to Billy Jurgis because all these teams brought in Billy Jurgis to help their players in spring training. Uh, Eddie Matthews was another one. And so Billy did a great job helping struggling players you know, learn the basics. And a lot of them really owed, came right out and said that they owed their careers to Billy. So he was a great instructor, wonderful baseball scout. I mean, that's a pretty good coda. Uh, for him, even despite some rocky years in the middle, but what was what was the end of Violet's story? After the shooting, Violet told reporters she was just going to go home and uh, kind of take the take take things easy and not really do too much. But on the on the day that newspapers reported on Billy's return to the baseball field, which was on July twenty third, Violet returned to the stage. You know, Billy didn't sign a. Any complaint, but Violet wasted no time in signing a contract to perform as a singer in an act at a burlesque club called the Bear Cub 
Follies. She was a singer, but management did its part to attract an audience by booking some bear cub girls. And I, and I mean the B-A-R-E club, Terrible. not the B-E-A-R club. No points for the pun. No points. <laughs> no point for the point, yeah. Uh, her show folded after a few weeks. Her nephew said that his aunt, quote, liked to sing. That is, she tried to sing. And I talk about serendipity. I mean, I, and again, I, I told you before, I, I went through all these Chicago newspapers trying to find some things. And then the, one of them was the Chicago Herald and Examiner. And I came across a marvelous ad for, 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 for her, her burlesque show. Uh, I reprinted it from the Chicago Herald and Examiner. You know, none, and none of these papers, you know, were available online or anything like that. I, I reprinted it in my book, uh, and, it, and it mentions the Bear Cub Girls and the Bear Cub Follies and everything. Uh, and, and I also wanted to come across, you know, what exactly went on at that particular time in, in the show. In fact, the ad's on page 46 in my book from the Chicago Herald and Examiner. But I wanted to find out exactly what happened in the show and by going through the Chicago Daily News I came across a, a, a whole review of her show with her not only her singing yeah, act, that was but, extraordinary yeah, but also what the Bear Cub Girls did and then the, and the, act, the degree of nudity depended upon the applause each girl got and and after and after that Violet started dating other people she dated a guy named Fred Williams took a marriage license out to get married, but they, ne- they they never did get married. She finally went to she moved to, to Los Angeles in 1940 with her mother. Uh, she always considered herself a professional singer. She had photographs taken of herself to try to get back on the stage. I have some of these uh, reproduced uh, in in my book. She was a city person. In 1947, she got married to a guy named Charlie Rutzlaff, who was a prize fighter from Duluth, Minnesota. That was probably doomed from the start. He was known as the, the Duluth Dynamiter. He was a very good fighter uh, until he met a young boxer named Joe Lewis who, in 1936 who promptly knocked him out in the first round. Uh, he, got, he got married. She, she, he, he was from Minnesota, a small ranch in Minnesota, Charlie Retzlaff was. He wanted her to, to stay on this ranch. She said, forget this. She stayed a couple months or so and then moved back to moved back to Los Angeles. She stayed she stayed she stayed married to him and never did get divorced. In fact, one of the funniest parts I think I uh, mentioned in my book is that uh, uh, I think it was in 1962 uh, Charlie and Violet are having dinner with with Violet's family and one of the family members is Mark Prescott whom Violet's nephew whom I interviewed extensively for this book and he and he gave me quite a few photographs of Violet and the family and she brightly tells everybody that she and Charlie sunbathed nude that that afternoon and uh, and and Mark says uh uh, Charlie got embarrassed. My father was furious, and the words went flying. And Violet still, she was not a she was not a social butter, uh, she, a social outcast. And I interviewed both uh, Violet's nephews, and they said that Violet had lots of male friends. She enjoyed she enjoyed baseball. She liked movies. She liked socializing with people. And uh, one time she was in a club near her place of business, which was a film studio near her near where she worked for a film. De- uh, studio in the color department. There was a club nearby, and John Wayne, the actor John Wayne, uh, t- 
tried to well he did pick her up and of course John Wayne did not exactly take his marriage vows too seriously and uh, he uh, he took her home and was hoping to go inside with her but Violet's mother was waiting up for her and he kind of dashed those plans oh uh, no but, oh my yeah. goodness that's yeah. uh wow <laughs> <laughs> right. I can imagine that, that's uh, yeah. I don't imagine John John Wayne was rebuffed on many occasions for much of anything yes. was he yes right exactly right yes uh-huh. I, read, I read a biography of him and it mentioned that quite a few times that he, he, he liked to go out. You said several times that you went through newspapers in Chicago and Brooklyn and other cities page by page. And for your research process... You describe early on in the book that you looked at newspapers, magazines, memoirs, court records, biographies, other sort of materials that you found in different places. What was the most valuable set of material that you found as you were researching and writing this book? I found these court records. Well, I did not find them. I I had a professional genealogist in in Chicago, and she knew people uh, in an office of uh, public records in Chicago. Uh, it was very hard to get these records, but she knew people, and it was just the best thing I ever did because she was very, very thorough. And I got all the case files related to uh, Violet's father's divorce from his wife, and I found out that uh, when Violet was 10 days old, his her father began beating his wife, Violet's mother, uh, giving her, as she says, black and blue marks all over her body. And they got divorced in 1920. Eight-year-old, I think Violet was eight years old, she had to testify on the stands during her own parents' divorce. And so, of course, it had to affect her, which made me think, you know, this is why Violet wanted to get married so badly, because of her Awful, awful home, awful home life, and uh, and, that, and it was valuable in this respect is that I could understand. I could not agree with what she did, but I could understand why she she just kept on wanting to get married. She wanted to have a a, a social life. She was just a. a an unhappy person. She went on the stage in 1931, I think it was, uh, to uh, maybe 1930. She, went, she took dancing lessons. She went on the stage, you know, just because she saw the glamour of the stage. And later she met Billy and she said, well, this, I, can, I had a crummy, I had a crummy life early on, but maybe I can have a real good life later. Uh, later. And, that, and, and that probably was the most fortunate piece of material that I had. And also the interviews I came across with uh, with, Violet's, with Violet's nephews and also the marvelous photographs. Because as you know, as you know the, the photographs, I have 50 photographs in there and they're just marvelous, marvelous photographs of Violet and the hotel and, 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 other, and other places. So the court records, the photographs, the interviews, and uh, and even just going through the newspapers it enabled me to find so many things, like the interviews with uh, the comments with the baseball players who found Billy on the floor. You know, I just I just had to come across all this, and it was very difficult because, as you know, I mean, we've jumped around an awful lot. There were all these simultaneous stories going on at the same time, so it was kind of tricky to weave them into one long narrative. Well, and for folks who may not have done sort of um primary archival research, sort of the old 
sitting in the chair until your lower back just can't take it anymore kind of research. I mean, that's work. That work, is hard yeah. work. But it's also the only way that you find some of these things. The only way. My, my colleagues would make fun of me in a nice way, I mean, because you know, I, I was a librarian for all this time and I'd get all these stacks of microfilm. And when the library, and I did this on my own time, by the way, this is all outside of library hours. And when we were closed over Christmas break, I would have all these reels of microfilm. I'd have a, 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 a radio there and I would have my, my bedroom slippers out there all packed up and people would come in over break to water the plants and they'd see me camped out I said got food over there I said Jackie it's like your second home is right here right now I said well I gotta take advantage the library is closed I got all these reels of microfilm to go through and they'd make sure my colleagues would make sure Jack, hey Jack's gonna be here over Christmas you gotta make sure the microfilm printers are working so it was like a whole family affair so to speak they all worked hard to make sure that I would be successful in my research well and again uh, we were speaking uh, in our last interview series with Jesse Sublett, who wrote a book about organized crime in Austin in the 60s. And, you know, we were talking about how the metaphor of being a bloodhound on a scent, you know, being a, a, a sort of chasing that that scent down a trail is really apt. You have to find what you're looking for because you know it's there. That's exactly right. And and. I thought that way with the, the with the review of Violet's show. I said, I've got to find out. I've got to find this. I'm going to go through everything. And maybe I'll, in fact, I even tried interviewing um, burlesque people. I sent uh, emails to burlesque people. What was a, a burlesque show like in the 1930s? Because south of State Street, where the State Congress Theater was, where, where Violet had her act, that was well known for its burlesque shows. I read burlesque histories. I went through files of, uh, of programs, you know, trying to find something about all this. And I, and I finally, I, I saw it in a review in the Chicago Daily News. And I thought, oh my God, here it is what I've been looking for, you know. And I, and I looked and there are all these online sources like newspapers.com and other things, but a lot of them, they, they cover a lot of Chicago newspaper, but they don't cover every single year. And a lot of them, a lot of these sources didn't have 1932 for all the papers. So uh, I had to do it the old fashioned way. You say very entertainingly that some of the sources that you looked at were not necessarily reliable themselves. Violet's own nephew, he didn't know that she'd shot Billy. Yeah, Mike Mike Prescott, right? Exactly. He did not even know that at the time. So I interviewed him, and he said, and he told me that, and he wrote me a letter too. That uh, she he stayed with her for about a year, I think, in the nineteen maybe nineteen sixty nine or something like that. And that's when he told me that you know she she liked movies, she liked baseball, she she smiled all the time, and, and he told me that you know. He knew that she stayed in an orphanage. In fact, when after they got divorced, uh, uh, Bala's father did not pay child support, or at least did not pay all they were supposed to. And so the the mother had to put the kids in an orphanage in Chicago. Well, luck as luck would have it, you know, uh, the the church record, the, the orphanage records were in the Chicago History Museum, all the Chicago also called the Chicago Historical Society. And I found them there, and I got to know the people there, and they let me go through them. So I found all this great material about. Violet and her brothers, she had three brothers. One of them, the report of the administrator there said that Violet's father wanted to take one of the boys home. And the boy refused, telling the administrator that the orphanage was, quote, the only real home I've ever known. 
you know, which which was sad in its in, in itself, you know. So, uh, so, uh, but he said, uh, Mike Prescott said that, uh, you know, he he knew that she stayed there and she and she could have been, you know, a, a sour all her life, but she was always upbeat. You know, her glass was always half full. She didn't have much money or anything like that, but uh, you know, even when she was in the nursing home, she kind of regaled the the staff and every and and other people with with tales of her of her eventful life. You have spent years researching and writing this account, and you have looked at material that nobody has ever seen and that no one would have ever seen had it not been for uh, your efforts to dig it out of these forgotten places. Are there any mysteries of the story that remain for you? I would have liked to have seen Violet and Billy's love letters. I, I go into the book about how her bail bondsman stole her love letters, and she eventually got them back. But I would like to have, uh, I'd like to have seen, uh, I'd like to have seen those. Also, when Violet went to Billy's door, room 509, with the gun, uh, the newspapers made a big deal about how her mysterious blonde companion, who was named Betty, and I and I make a guess, and I make a pretty good guess that this was probably her stepsister because I knew they were pretty close. In fact, I have a picture of, of what I think is her stepsister in the book, and I would I'd like to have had that verified. It wasn't really her stepsister, uh, and everything who was. Uh, the, and again, the papers called her the mysterious blonde companion. I'd like to have known to know more about that. Now, at the end of the book, I do say that Mark Prescott, the one who supplied the photographs, he told me that he heard Violet tell her his mother quote you know that she that that I was very angry and I wanted to kill him you know so she really there was no mystery about that you know she went into uh that room intending to shoot him despite all her protests later on I'd like to know more about again more about the love letters know more about the stepsisters later life and if and she and Violet knew they both lived in LA but I really couldn't find much more about her family in LA I would have liked to find out how how she met Charlie Retzlaff the the boxer you know no one knew that you know no one knew that None of the family members knew that. When I was growing up, there were two things that I thought I would never see in my lifetime. Uh, one was an African-American president, and the other was uh, my beloved New Orleans Saints winning the Super Bowl. And within a few years of one another, both of those things happened. Now, for Chicago fans, for Chicago fans, there would be one more added to that particular list. And I just have to ask you, Jack, where were you in 2016? 2016 right. yeah. I, I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, watching the game on television in, in, in my living room. And, uh, and I swear to God, I just almost gave gave it up. And I and I really believe if it wasn't for that rain delay, I think the Cubs would have lost it. But for somehow, I mean, the the, the gods must have been smiling because uh, uh, when that rain delay came, it enabled the Cubs to get get their act together, get all focused up. And I really uh, thought it was all over. You know, I I thought it was all over. But then the, the, and the rain came, and then they came back, and I, mean, I got talk about heart. Uh, and all, and, and I just, in fact, when they when they finally won it, and I watched that game a couple of times. I have the DVD of the one game and everything, and I watched it a couple of times. And uh, <laughs> there you go. And I just, and I remember just sitting there, and, and I didn't even move. People were standing up and cheering. I wasn't doing that at all. I was just kind of in shock. I said, "Oh my God, it's finally happened!" You know, I was sitting in my armchair near right where I'm sitting right now, just staring at the television. So it was after midnight by the time all this has been going on. You know, and. Uh, and I say that, and I read later on when they had the big party, you know, the big uh, parade that was uh, the the largest 
gathering of people in the history of the Western Hemisphere. I read someplace. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I mean, what are we talking? Like 1 million, 2 million, 3 million? What was it? I, 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 think it was, I think it was over 5 million, I think. You know, I could have been wrong about that, but I, I have it written in my notes, and I, and I don't, and I, but I can't remember offhand. I do have a picture of it, though. Uh, in fact, I, I give a little... Uh, uh, when I was at Mary Washington, I gave the, the, the professor would like me to give like a little uh, a PowerPoint on on the Cubs in my research, and so I had a I, I end with this large gathering of of of, of, of people, and then I said oh, that was the 2016 you know uh, World Series, and then. I talk about the last time the Cubs won the World Series in 1908, and and I talk about the parade that wasn't held then, and it was like kind of like a little wagon train, a, a wagon train assemblage of like four or five wagons, and it always gets <laughs> and it always gets a big laugh, you know, meaning that you know not too much was going on back then. Well, it 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 really is still surreal uh, to. Uh that it happened, and I remember just thinking, this can't be, this can't be, and then suddenly it is. Well, Jack, your joy in uh, both your beloved cubbies and telling a good story are very apparent to us, and so thank you for bringing that joy and that great story to Crime Capsule. It's been a privilege. Thanks for listening. Our guest today has been Jack Bales author of The Chicago Cub Shot for Love, a showgirl's crime of passion in the 1932 World Series, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press, and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.